Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is Reza Kajabi, CEO of Shoelace, which is creating memorable experience that build brand equity. Welcome Reza, excited to have you here. Thanks Rish, pleasure to uh, chat with you. Yes, I'd just like to start the conversation and give the audience a little bit of backstory. If you could just tell them your story and what led you to to eventually starting Shoelace. Sure, happy to. So um, let's see how far back to go. I think I've always known that I wanted to like build companies. I dropped out of um, university to start my first company with my brother. It was a laundry delivery business. So this was around like 2008, nine. We were building a kind of on-demand laundry delivery business. So instead of like going to the local dry cleaner, you like order a pickup and someone come and collect your laundry and then deliver it back to you. So I worked on that company for quite a few years, maybe five, six years, but it never really like, grew to be something very big at the time i wasn't really thinking about it in terms of building like a really large business or anything like that it was just kind of building a regular company and so through that experience we didn't raise any money or anything like that through that experience it was a lot of just hustle and grind to get the business off the ground me and my brother would both do the all the deliveries ourselves i mean we didn't really have any money to hire like a designer or a developer or anything to build our website. So I ended up learning how to code on my own. So I would like do the deliveries in the morning and at night just became obsessed with learning programming. And it was fun because as I was learning programming, I was also kind of figuring out how to build the web app for this, mm-hmm. for this dry cleaning business. So I have actually found that wanting to learn programming, if it's just going through tutorials and stuff like that, it becomes yeah, the, difficult. You got that direct feedback loop. Um, exactly yeah yeah and so that was fun it really exposed me to software and technology and i just i kind of became addicted to it and i knew that at some point if i wanted to start another company i wanted to be a lot more closer to software and just the idea that that business was so limited by geography so we were we grew up in montreal and we were thinking about expanding the business to like a different city like toronto or something and just the logistics that would have to go into expanding from one city to another was like was pretty crazy so i remember at the time thinking that you know this idea of building an online business something that you can serve customers around the world as something pretty fascinating so i ended up after that we sold the company to the local to one of the dry cleaning partners that we were working with for a very modest sum it's not uh anything me and my brother actually calculated and we probably would have made more money if we'd worked like minimum wage jobs throughout that time period. So, but it was like a good experience. We learned yeah. a lot. I ended up uh, moving to Toronto and joining a 
company called Hubba, which was building kind of a marketplace for brands and retailers to connect. And they were pretty early stage, joined in, I think it was about like 15 people or so at the time there. It was my first official job as a programmer, which was nice. It gave me some, some personal validity because at that time I was worried, like, had I, have I just become a failure? I worked on this business for so many years, don't really have much to show for it, don't really have a degree. Is anybody going to give me a job? So I was like kind of uh, nervous about that. So getting this job was really nice. It made me, you know, feel like I can now safely be employed as a programmer because I have this official job on my resume. So that was nice. But I, I kind of got the itch again. And I knew that I, I, you know, knew that I wanted to start a company again. At Hubba, I met two of my co-founders for Shoelace. And after a while, we sort of just started talking about different ideas and what it would be like to work together. And we ended up quitting our jobs. This would have been, I think we're coming up to six years now, May 2000, sorry, five years, five years. Um, mm-hmm. We quit our jobs in May 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't really have an idea at the time, which is a little bit risky. I wouldn't necessarily advise that, but mm-hmm. we felt like the three of us had the right combination of skill sets to kind of build whatever we wanted. And we, we just got tired of, you know, trying to brainstorm on nights and weekends. We just wanted to throw all of our energy at, at ideating and, and working on different problems and give ourselves like three, four months. And if we weren't able to come up with something, then kind of just go back and try to get another job again. So that's what we did and worked on a few different ideas. And I'll spare you all of the very various things that we worked on. But the last experiment that we were working on that led us to shoelace was this idea that we wanted to help businesses who shared a similar audience but didn't compete with each other we wanted to help them cross promote each other's um, businesses so you know somebody buys a product from business a how do we have that um, you know customer see an ad for business b or vice versa and so we wanted to do this like clever method of retargeting each other's audiences so if somebody leaves that website then they'll see you know, a retargeting ad for the partner business or whatever. And so we talked to customers about this who were pretty much into it, but the feedback we got was that, you know, this is a really clever idea. We'd love to give it a shot, but we would also just kind of struggling with our own retargeting. So could you maybe just help us with that? And so we accidentally stumbled into this, into this realization. We were not from the industry, from like the ad tech industry by any means, but we, we stumbled into this realization that, that was right around the time where Facebook was sunsetting their ad exchange program, the FBX program, where okay. they were basically working with, with partners on cookie sharing and sort of building a retargeting distribution network that way. But they were just rolling out their custom audience and their own pixel. And that was like a very big new thing for Facebook. And so a lot of people were trying to figure that out. Like how does Facebook's custom audience work? How does dynamic product ads work? How do you upload your catalog? And so that was right at the beginning. And then Shopify was also really starting to take off and uh, brands were kind of building their online stores on Shopify. And so we found ourselves like in this accidental middle ground between Facebook and Shopify. And that's when we quickly learned that 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 was a good opportunity for us to explore. And we built a pretty basic app that would help customers like pretty easily launch retargeting campaigns on on Facebook and so automated some of the pixel event firing some of the product catalog stuff and just made it pretty easy to launch dynamic product ads which obviously became a lot easier to do over time but at, at, at that time 
you'd have to read through like a few blog posts, get into your theme.liquid, export your product catalog. It was pretty messy for, especially for non-technical e-commerce yeah. owners. So that's sort of what, what threw us into that trajectory. And then obviously over time, as dynamic product ads got easier and easier to do, and as retargeting got more and more annoying for consumers, we started to kind of evolve on our business. And you know, it's taken a few turns since then, which we can get into, but that was sort of the origin story. Thank you for, thank you for breaking that down. So I know that you mentioned in there that you wouldn't recommend to uh, anybody out there to simply just cut their bridges and jump into entrepreneurship, but what advice would you give somebody now that you've started several businesses, one sex more successful than the other, well, what advice would you give them to start a bit, start a business or think about uh, exploring an idea? I think that the first thought that comes to mind for me is to, is to move quickly. I think a lot of people get stuck in their own heads and, you know, you see them and you talk to them and for like four months, they're just, you know, thinking about their idea. They're kind of fashioning it. They're theorizing with it. They're just kind of marinating in the idea for just way too long. And I think that is, that feels to me like the biggest difference between getting things rolling versus, versus just like having a dream of, of starting a company one day. And I think, people really tend to overcomplicate how easy it would be to launch a business. So like people will create these excuses that, you know, in order for this idea to work, I would need to do this, 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 and this, and this, and I'll need like these many resources and it's going to take this much time to work on. Whereas like, you know, the, like the theory of the lean startup has been kind of repeated to death, but it's, it's, it's uh, you know, how do you break down, that big idea into something that you could just test like in a, in a very small way. And so my biggest advice would be like, if it's a software business, like find a way to launch it without writing a line of code. It could be building a landing page and then showing it to people to see if that problem even resonates with them. Or if there's something that can be done manually for the first like four or five customers that doesn't even require any software or anything to try that I'll give you an example. A friend of mine was, was talking about this idea where it was something like an, the, he wanted to build like the Uber for photographers or something. He was thinking about like this network of freelance photographers that would like walk around tourist sites. And if you were a tourist, you just open your phone and call one of the photographers to come to you quickly and, and, you know, and how fascinating it would be. And so he was thinking about the network of photographers, thinking about the app and all of these like various components. And my advice then was like, go to a tourist destination, like wear, I don't know, a t-shirt or something that is representative of this, of this brand and walk up to people and say like, Hey, can I take your photo and see if, see if they do that or see if you can like, you know, just what, what can be done to just test the idea tomorrow, this afternoon, um, obsessing and having a, a serious like bias towards getting the ball rolling because the the idea never ends up looking like what you initially thought it would and the longer people delay starting to just get it out there talk to customers try different things you, you mentioned like feedback loop early on but like that's that that becomes the problem with the, the feedback loop becomes way too long uh-huh. so in short that's that's my advice is like launch something anything quickly and and have really 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 rapid feedback loops um so that you can learn quickly 
I think that's very, very good advice. I think the more often people are just building up the number of obstacles as opposed to kind of narrowing down to what a potential solution could be. So yeah, uh, in a way, I find it's like our brains softening failure for us. Right. So it's like, you know, you, you create all of these different conditions that need to go right in order for my idea to work. It's almost like we're creating an off ramp for ourselves that in two years from now, when we say that, okay, this idea didn't work, then at least we have this like pile of excuses. Well, yeah, obviously it didn't work. Like all these different things that need to happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, and so I think we're, it's sort of this self-sabotage of setting ourselves up for having an excuse later of, of why it didn't work out. Okay. No, I, I, I agree completely. So let's switch over to, you know, at Shoelace, you are working with some of the leading direct-to-consumer brands, e-commerce brands out there, and you're helping them to build better experiences with their, their advertising and then retargeting for people to come back. You know, what, what are some of the pillars that you found from all the clients that you've worked with that make a memorable brand? experience yeah so i think to me when i think about brand i think a lot about story and this idea that you know humans are so drawn to stories and that a brand to me is a brand that is able to to tell a story and resonate with a group of people in a certain way and so the the biggest when somebody when when a brand doesn't feel like it it has anything special usually it's an absence of a story so an example is a brand like tracksmith which i think is just a phenomenal up-and-coming brand for they do apparel for runners and when you when you consume their website when you you know look at a lot of the content they put out it's very clear that they have a story they stand for something and you know what they specifically stand stand for is for like the amateur runner who has this pursuit of excellence who wants to be who wants to take the craft of running super seriously and and as opposed to kind of just you know wearing whatever and and going for a jog like it means something that if you wear a tracksmith outfit you've now suddenly taken running a lot more seriously and so it has that impact on the consumer and I know I, I used to give the outdoor voices example a lot. I know they, they got through a bit of trouble in the last little while, but I think regardless of the turbulence they went through, nobody can understate the, the powerful impact of the brand that they created. Mm-hmm. And that's another example of a great story behind a brand. And that story is, this, is, is the example of like, I think the founder was on a podcast once and she was breaking it down that a lot of, athleisure companies would position themselves as the kind of high performance athlete. A lot of the photography, a lot of the positioning of Nike and other brands are like, push yourself to the limit. Like a lot of that aggressive language about high performing athleticism, whereas, you know, Outdoor Voices wanted to position themselves as, you know, something for the recreationalist, somebody who doesn't want to run like, a 15 kilometer run in the morning or somebody just wants to go out and like move a little bit and just be like lightly active. And then what their brand seemed to stand for is that that's okay. Like, you know, we are meant for people like that as, as like a softer intro into, into just moving around and being a bit more yeah. active. And so I think when you can, when you can look at the brand and say like, 
are, what are they saying? What do they, what do they stand for? What do they want customers to feel when they interact with the brand or when they buy their products? Like, is there a story behind the brand? And often I think the greatest brands you'll see that there's a very compelling story behind it. And the reason why that's captivating is that customers want to see themselves in that story. Like they kind of want to be the hero of that story and it, it creates meaning in their life. And, and that's the sort of impact that, that a brand can have. And it, it only happens when, you know, the story is very well defined, very well narrated and, and it lands really well with, with their customers and kind of reinforced with the audience and the community that, that gets built throughout that. So it's, it's not easy for sure. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of just careful discipline to, mm -hmm. to be so thoughtful about like every single subtlety of, of that brand building exercise. But I think, I think the people who don't get it right are the ones who kind of scoff at it and don't really take it seriously and say like, Oh, that's sort of just like fluffy nonsense. I'll make a good product and people will love it. And you know, to some extent that works, but the best companies of all time, I think, tend to have a really phenomenal brand associated to it. So mm -hmm. that's what I've seen, at least. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. How much, I mean, I think one of the questions people would say based on the examples provided would be how much, how much does capital or raising capital have to do with telling a great story? Or does it not have anything to do with capital raise? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it has to. I think in, in the case of Tracksmith, I don't know exactly, but they've either raised no money or very, very, very little money. And their whole kind of mindset isn't necessarily about the kind of growth at all costs mentality. They are, they've been kind of moving pretty slow and steady. I, I'd have to look again if, if they had raised money since the last time I checked, maybe it's possible. But yeah, I don't think so. I think I, I don't have any examples that come to come to mind right now, but there are a ton of brands that are able to find kind of niche audiences and and create an emotional connection with a small pocket of the world right and it doesn't take a lot of capital it kind of just create it, it what it takes mostly is you know crafting the story and finding a set of people who are um believers of that story and i don't think it takes uh it takes a lot of capital like, i think it helps if you're able to hire one of those you know super high-end agencies like the red antlers and you know, formerly gin lane to work on that stuff for you like they'll definitely give it a real push and, and do a great job on that but i don't think it's necessarily a requirement okay i think that uh, will clarify that for the audience any particular resources you would recommend if somebody is reevaluating their brand or just launching a brand resources in terms of how to approach that, how to make sure they're taking that thoughtful look in, into, into their brand, making sure all the touch points are kind of creating that coherent storytelling. So what I would say is I think the best place to start is mostly like at the fundamentals. There's a really great book that I always recommend. It's called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And this is quite an old book. If I'm not mistaken, this, this book was written in like the 80s or something like that. Or maybe yeah, the 90s. yeah, it was. It's, by yeah. uh, Al, Al Rice, I think. Yes, last, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and so what's funny about that book is that, you know, it talks about how, you know, co consumers are bombarded these days with like messaging and, and everyone's trying to kind of uh, grab the attention of the consumer. And when I was reading that book uh, a little while ago and I was laughing that, you know, if that was true in the 80s, like 
what would what would the author say about the state of affairs right now? And that that book, I think, has has quite has done a great job standing the test of time. And I, I would I would recommend some of those types of material to mm-hmm. get a better sense of like the fundamentals of brand building. And it really is just about, um, as the book describes, like creating a position in in the consumer's mind. How do you grab their attention? What does what what does it take to stand out in this kind of crowded environment? And it goes through a whole lot of you know specific examples of of how to do that. So my my thought would be to start with some of those like fundamental concepts as opposed to what's trending right now or like what are what are some good tactics. So I think like there's there's the fundamentals and then there's the tactics. And so I think the best place to start is is the fundamentals and a book like that is is probably a good good place to start. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great place to start for sure. So let's move on to kind of digital marketing as a whole and the state of it as we're recording it right now are still in the midst of um, the COVID situation that's in, that's going on. I'd love to kind of just kind of describe that and kind of if you could just give a headline among kind of what has happened since this whole thing occurred. We got stay-at-home orders and kind of how that's affect e-commerce and digital marketing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so like it's, there, I think it's still so early to try to understand what where this thing is going to go but at least what we've seen over the last let's see maybe it's been a month now right i think like about march 15th was roughly when things started to go a little bit crazy mm-hmm. from from what we've seen across all of our customers that first week or two in in kind of toward like the the, the second half of march was pretty crazy across the board i think there was a lot of interruption in supply chains. There was like consumers not spending, everyone just like freaked out and just like collectively paralyzed a little bit for, for a good couple of weeks, uh, really only buying essentials, stocking up on toilet paper, yeah. all of those, the, the, the frenzy that we saw for the second half of March. But since the start of April, particularly in the last like week or so, I think a lot of what we've seen is as folks have spent more and more time at home and not really able to like go to stores and buy stuff. I think, I think you start to see a lot of movement towards e-commerce where people are buying stuff online who previously were a lot more comfortable, like going to the store or something like that. And so I think it's a, it's a weird state of affairs because the world is sort of crumbling in a lot of different industries, but I think e-commerce is pretty decently positioned to I think be able to survive the turbulence and then get some pretty aggressive tailwind whenever things start to calm down again, because now all these people are starting to adopt online shopping as a new behavior. So yeah, and and it kind of fluctuates across industries. So we've seen some categories like food and beverage are obviously doing really well, health and beauty, like skincare products doing pretty well. I think it kind of goes up and down a little bit, but like electronics, home decor, plants, like a lot of these things, which you would imagine, you know, when given people's current situation, what are they doing? What are they buying? What are they spending money on? Whereas other categories like, you know, brands that were in the travel category who sell, who sold like, I don't know, camping equipment or backpacks or luggages, like these things are taking a real hit for sure. And so I think you have, a few categories that are seeing a serious boom as a result of this, 
a few categories that are being like very, very negatively impacted as a result of this. And most categories in the middle are kind of just like neutrally making their way forward. And then the other element, which is very much related to like us and our customers is that you've seen the cost of Facebook advertising and just paid advertising in general plummet quite a bit <laughs> over the combination of, you know, a lot of large advertisers pulling back from, from their ad spend budgets, as well as a lot of consumers spending a lot more time on their feeds that has created, you know, a, a pretty big imbalance in Facebook's auction, which has meant that the cost of advertising has plummeted quite a bit, which is a, is a pretty unique oppor opportunity for brands who are able to continue operating right now, especially if you look at the world of paid advertising, like we were reaching a point where the topic that was on everybody's minds, including shoelace was that, you know, the cost of advertising has gone way too high and brands need to start taking a serious look at the way they're acquiring customers, their lifetime value map, like those start, those types of things were starting to get so important that like, you know, brands weren't able to succeed or, or exist or kind of be able to um, survive otherwise. But everything sort of changed where you start to see the, that equation go back to what it was like a few years ago, which again is, is not healthy. I think we're, we're still going to see a, a, a time period where brands are going to rely way too heavily on paid advertising for their customers. And then over time, that's going to come back to bite them because they've got, mm -hmm. you know, flexed their muscles of being able to acquire customers through their more kind of organic channels. But in this in this current time period, there's definitely an opportunity there. And so, yeah, it's, I think e-commerce is one of the industries that is still beating and not as affected as, as most, most other industries. But again, like there's still so, so unclear where things are going to go. Like the number of people that have applied for employment insurance is just like the, it's the economy is on like a, bit of an unpredictable state right now so it's not clear what things are going to look like so i think most people are kind of just taking things like week by week at best very very hard to plan for you know months at a time at this point <laughs> yeah thank you for giving me a recap on kind of the situation and kind of some forward looking thoughts is would you still say that facebook instagram are still the top platforms to to advertise in this current current time for new brands or is there any newer 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 platforms that you would recommend or older platforms like google over this time so that's that's hard for me to say because our experience is predominantly on facebook and instagram we're running like some small scale tests across google snapchat pinterest etc for customers but the bulk of our ad spend goes towards Facebook and Instagram. So I don't, I don't have good enough visibility to be able to compare it to other platforms, but Facebook and Instagram are, you know, obviously like really powerful platform given the amount of data that is pumped through Facebook's pixels to be able to understand like what, who are the right types of customers who would be interested in, in various types of products. Like I think it has matured so much as a platform that its system is able to do a really good job of like putting the right ads in front of, in front of people. And it's where a lot of consumers spend time, right? I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really powerful uh, platform for that reason. But then you also have obviously like people are in 
their homes and they're thinking about like things that they want to buy. And so I don't have firsthand experience about this, but I would imagine that, you know, search advertising is a really big deal right now as well, because, you know, somebody is, you know, having an idea about a thing that they're looking for and there's no store that they can drive down to go and get it. And so they're sort of just like beginning their search on the internet. And so search engine marketing, I imagine is, uh, is, is a really interesting place to be in right now as well. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely an interesting time for just possibly if you have a little bit of extra capital experimenting in other platforms and trying to figure it out. But I think you're right. Most of the traffic is still going to be on Instagram and uh, Facebook. So uh, definitely moving forward. Is there, now just focusing on Facebook and Instagram, is there any particular types of trends or creative um, that you've seen that's more popular than not in terms of the content used in advertisements? I think it varies a lot, right? It varies on the type of business and the demographic. So, you know, brands that are reaching a much younger demographic, I think needs to account for a different type of creative. So I don't, I don't think there's like a one size fits all answer, but a lot of it, I think just comes down to testing different things. A lot of times people will have an opinion about like what could work on a given on a given campaign, but after trying a few different things, like you suddenly realize that something else is, is, is working better. So I don't think there's a, there's a one size fits all answer there, but a lot of testing, I think usually helps reveal strategies that are, that are working for, for different brands. Yeah. I think that's great, great advice for anybody um, that's, you know, looking to try new things or advertise. Is there any particular topic or conversation that's happening in the digital marketing space and the brand building space that is a myth you'd like to just kind of debunk and kind of say this is kind of doesn't make any sense for why, why people are talking about it it's it's hard to say in this exact moment right because the world just kind of got flipped on its head and and, yep. and so in some ways anything is possible right now and so i think I think it's very difficult for anybody to make any sort of definitive claims right now. So I think maybe that's the one thing I would, I would debunk that if anybody makes any definitive claim right now, I think it's uh, worth, worth being uh, leery about. I think we're all sort of in this large scale experiment together, trying to figure out what, what are the next opportunities. I think, yeah, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a good myth to, to debunk right now no, no no problem you know sometimes you know situations don't don't need don't don't allow that to happen so it's fine yeah. so let's move to just the final questions now so we like to just break down certain routines morning routines rituals that our guests have break it down for the audience so is there any morning routines rituals or habits as you do in the course of a day or regularly that provide you value that could help the audience yeah, so I do a few things. One thing that I do, there's a couple of things that I do every single day. One of them is before I start my work day, I'll usually journal for about 10, 15 minutes. And this is just like, just brain dump of anything that's on my mind. I don't really do anything with the, with the things that I write, just sort of just like decluttering my mind. Things that are worrying me or things I'm concerned about are usually the first things to come out. But I do try, I do do that every single day. I use like a, 
a notion board for this and I have like a calendar view. So every morning I'll just like create a new entry, which is cool. And I, I have like a couple of years worth of entries and sometimes it's fun to go back and see what was on my mind a couple of years ago. So I do do that and it's really helpful. I also, I used to kind of every morning I would just like run out of the house and go to work and usually just like grab something to eat on the way. And I was like just in a rush all the time to, to go and start my day. Uh, and then one of the things that I started about a year ago is to just be a bit more like slower to start the day. So like I always make a pretty good breakfast. I make an omelet every single morning. It takes me a bit of time to like chop up the onions and, and just like prepare it, which in, if you would have asked me a few years ago, I'd be like, this is such a waste of time. Like you're going to, you're going to spend like 30 minutes on this, like you got work to do, like just like run to work already. And I was just like in a, in a, in a rush all the time. And I felt like that was a really big change for me that instead of just running all the time, I kind of was like, wait, where am I going? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have like a really good strategy that I'm pursuing. And so kind of, um, scrambling to figure out what to do was sort of how I found myself in the past. Whereas now I just try to be a bit more deliberate about playing offense of like, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to focus on? Mm-hmm. And being okay with a bit of a slower start to the day, just to kind of be more calm and collected. Let's see the other routine. It's not daily, but I'll go for a run maybe three, four times a week early in the morning before starting my day. And that I found is really helpful those are those are some of the top routines that come to mind. Yeah, thank you. I think that's going to help the audience and give them some great suggestions. So I guess this kind of bleeds in your answer, kind of bleeds into the next question. What does personal care mean to you? I know it's something recently that you mentioned that you're going to start to incorporating into your life. So, Personal care. I'd say there's a, there's a friend of mine. I don't know if you have show notes, but I could send you his mm-hmm. Twitter. His name yeah, is Ken. absolutely. Dr. Cameron Sipa. He's a, he's a psychologist and an executive coach. And he has this Twitter thread that I really like. He talks about, and it's kind of addressed at CEOs or aspiring CEOs. And he goes like, if you want to be a CEO, try to be the CEO of yourself first, which I really stood out to me. And I think it is the first thought that came to my mind when, when I heard the word personal care, that like a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs, want to be founders, want to be operators. And I think we neglect what a massive like logistical operation our like being is, you know, what we need to eat, how to sleep, like how to just like manage our own mind priorities. Like there's just this, like, it's almost like a, like a nation that exists within us. Right. And we have to be like the president of ourselves of our own organization. And so I think to me, the thought of personal care is the thought of like just being in control of your own self because if if not then how could one possibly have any sort of positive impact anywhere else right like if you're not able to have a grip on on the challenges of 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 your own self then it makes it very difficult and you'd be kind of starting from a position of weakness to try to address any external challenge Mm -hmm. so just kind of yeah understanding that you know there is a there's an organization within you and you, you are the head of that organization and, and mm-hmm. being in control of the logistical elements of that organization to me is, is how, how I think about personal care. 
thank you. I think it's a it's a great advice to start with oneself and then move from outward from there. So a final question, if you were to have a dinner party, who would you invite? Guests can be dead or alive and why? Mm. I mean, hearing hearing dead or alive makes me think I should definitely pick a dead guest. But the first thought that came to mind was Vinod Kosla. I'm yeah. a huge fan of that guy. He's he's an investor and he talks what I love about him is that he talks a lot about failure and how uh, failure is sort of a skill to be mastered as opposed to something to shy away from. And this idea that you know, there is no success without failure. And so the point isn't to try to avoid failure. The point is to try to fail intelligently. And how do you think about that? And he talks about concepts like considering the upside of, of the initiative. So if you want to kind of do something and there's a likelihood to fail, if the upside of that is really high and the downside of that failure is manageable, those are the games that you want to play as opposed to ones where, you know, the, the, the cost of failure is really high and the upside isn't even that, that high anyway. So like, what, what's the point of, of playing games like that? And it, and it seems simple, but I think, I think a difficult thing to master. So I definitely would want to talk to him more. I think I'd, I'd, I'd for sure invite Nassim Taleb as well there. And I think like I'd probably be, confused by most of the things he says but the one or two percent of things that i could like pick up on and and kind of internalize already have been kind of life-changing for me so we'd love to talk more to him about that and then one person that i could bring back from the dead would potentially be andy grove who wrote the book um high output management who i think has kind of become uh, the Bible for management. So many people refer to that book as the kind of principles of, of management. I think from that book, I learned the concept of high leverage work and how, you know, what, what is, what does it mean to be a manager and how do you measure the productivity of a manager? And again, with, with a lot of great people like that, I think I've probably only internalized a small percentage of those ideas. So it would be great to, talk to him in real life and dig deeper. Yeah, I know. I think it's a great group, especially in these current times. I think it'd be some pretty interesting conversation. Totally. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Reza. Really appreciate you having here. If the listeners wanted to connect with you online, where should where should they go to reach out to you? I'm fairly active on Twitter, so that's not a bad place. My handle is at Reza Kajabi. And uh, I'm also available on email, reza at shoelace.com. Yeah. All right. Thank you again. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Rish.